Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. Hi, everybody. Long time no see. Long time no see. Um, it's my great pleasure to introduce Mr. Li Jianjian. Um, now, can, can I be personal for a, for a little while? He's a very good friend of mine and has been for a long time. And he's the director of the Australian Studies Centre at um, the Beijing Foreign Studies University. Beijing, why will you say Why will you dust here? which is um, the best, or at least one of the best, um, Australian study centres in China. China has more Australian study centres than the whole of the rest of the world put together, including Australia. Um, and it's one of the best. And um, he is a specialist on Australian literature. He's one of um, China's foremost uh, specialists on Australian literature. Um, and he's currently doing a PhD in, the, in that area at the University of Western Sydney. So I'd like to welcome him, and his topic is on the, up there, A Time of Dreams, Enthusiasms, Australian Writers in China, 1950 to 1965. Please. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Colleen. Um, I can't say I'm an uh, expert uh, on Australian literature, but I do have... Uh, I mean, some uh, uh, materials and uh, expertise uh, on the topic of Australian writers in China uh, in the period 1950 to 1965. Yes. Thank you for your coming. Uh, I'd like to pay my respect to the Aboriginal elders, past, present, and emerging. I also want to thank uh, Professor Colin McCarris and the Asia Institute for inviting me to this seminar. Uh, it's really my great pleasure uh, to come back to Griffiths. Uh, I was here 17 years ago uh, in the year 2002 as a business scholar. Uh, at that time, I was based at the School of Humanities. Uh, from Beijing Foreign State University. Uh, in that year, I met Colin and uh, Professor Patrick Buckridge and Professor Wayne Hudson and David Carter and some other scholars and who were all driving factors that made me committed to Australian studies in China ever since. Now, one of my favorite quotes is from Alfred North Whitehead. An English mathematician and a philosopher, in his Science and Modern World, uh, published in 1929, Whitehead stated that it is in literature that the concrete outlook of country receives its expression. Accordingly, it is to literature that we must look if we are to discover the inward source of a generation. I'm very passionate about the cultural and educational engagement and exchanges between China and Australia. My current study as a PhD candidate at West Sydney University has provided me with a very rare opportunity to research on cultural encounters between China and Australia in the 1950s and the 60s. Uh, that's a very special period, I mean, uh, both, I mean, especially for China. Now, in his 
most recent book, Strand Nation, Wild Australia in an Asian Region, Professor David Walker cited me as the authority on the topic. But I have to say here that my candidature was just confirmed last week. And today's talk is about my preliminary research on Australian writers in China in 1950s and 60s. The year uh, is back until the 19, uh, from 1950 to 1965, the year before the Cultural Revolution started in China. I know some of you have known that Colin uh, was teaching English at Beijing Foreign Language Institute uh, from 1964 to 1966, for two years. At any time in history, uh, transcultural literacy and competence is of paramount importance for effective and successful transcultural encounters and communications. To cultivate transcultural literacy and competence, active engagement is very essential. In 1950 to 65, which was still the period of the Cold War, Australia and China regarded each other as hostile countries, and official disengagement was implemented. In his book, Australia's China, Changing Perceptions from the 1930s to the 1990s, Lachlan Strain notes that in its campaign to strengthen the anti-communist frontier in Asia, Canberra enforced its own restrictions on freedom of movement between Australia and China, refusing at various times to issue passports to Australian travelers and visas to PRC citizens. Nevertheless, engagement of some sort between Australia and China occurred, contrary to what was commonly assumed, Apart from the direct and indirect trade, weight, wool, iron ore from Australia, and the merchants from Australia who source Chinese goods at the annual trade fairs in China, especially in Guangzhou. People-to-people -people contact was quite active. As early as in 1952, three years after the People's Republic of China was proclaimed, Four members of an Australian delegation to a conference in defense of children in Vienna were invited to visit China. On their way to the Soviet Union after the Vienna conference, Dorothy Hewitt, Les Flood, Madeleine Kempster, and Mary Lewis were formally invited to China with all expenses paid. In his Australian China, Lachlan Strand mentions that the ongoing tours to China in 1950 to 65 by Australian adventurers, curious travelers like Geoffrey Blaney, CPA members, peace activists, left-wing unionists, ALP delegates, and Australian China Society delegates. Some Australians even stayed in China for an extended period for example, the writer Jim Fulner-Cusack stayed for two and a half years in China, and Ralph de Bossier for half a year. Now I will present a general survey of Australian literature in China in 1950 to 65. 
No Australian literary works have been found that were translated and published in book forms before 1950. Research shows that only six Australian short stories and four poems were published in literary journals in 19, from 1906 to 1921. The years of 1950 to 65 were a special period in China when the newly established socialist country, PRC, was somewhat isolated from the major Western countries, Australia included. However, I have so far identified 23 novels, plays, and collections of short stories by 11 Australian writers were translated into Chinese and published in China from 1950 to 65. James Aldridge, an Australian-British writer and a journalist, was regarded as a progressive writer in the Cold War period. Five of his notable works were written in the 1940s and early 1950s, were translated into Chinese in the 1950s, the first decades of the People's Republic of China, which is a remarkable phenomenon for any Western writers. The first translated Australian literary work in Chinese was James Audrey's, James Audrey's The Diplomat, published by Shanghai Publishing House in 1953. In the same year, The Diplomat was retranslated and published by Cultural Work Society. <coughs> For more of James Audrey's books, The Sea Eagle, The Hunter, Signed with Their Honor, and The Heroes of Empty View were published by Writers Publishing House, New Literature and Publishing House, and Shanghai Literature and Art Publishing House. So altogether five books by James Aldrich were translated and uh, published in China in the 1950s. That's very, uh, I mean, remarkable event for any Western writer I mean, in that period. Now, the second writer who was translated into Chinese and published in China was Frank Hardy. Three of his books, Journey into the Future by Shanghai Literature and Art Publishing House in 1954, Power Without Glory by New Literature and Art Publishing House in 1957, and The Four-Legged Lottery by Shanghai Literature and Art Publishing House in 1962, came out in Chinese translation. Okay, the next book uh, is The Tracks We Travel, a collection of Australian short stories edited by uh, a collection of Australian short stories uh, which includes uh, one Frank Hardy's short story was published by Shanghai Literature and Art Publishing House in 1959. Jack Lindsay's Betrayed Spring in Chinese translation was published by Pingming Publishing House in 1955, and then by New Literature and Art Publishing House in 1957. One children's book by Jack Lindsay, Run Away, was published by the Children's Publishing House in 1957. Now this book, it's interesting to know that 
the version was based not uh, was based not uh, on the English version, but on the uh, Russian version published in the Soviet Union. The late 1950s in China saw the translation and the publication of four Australian plays. Wilfred G. Butcher's Changing Tide by New Literature and Art Publishing House in 1956. Pacific Pacific Paradise by China Drama Publishing House in 1957. Mona Bryan's Better Amusedom by China Drama Publishing House in 1957. And Strangers in the Land by New Literature and Art Publishing House in 1957. The three playwrights were considered progressive, and their plays carry very clear political messages. Wang Turing's literary work, called Died Dick on the Barrier Reef, by Leslie Rees, was published in Chinese translation by Children's Publishing House in 1958. Then, three of Ralph de Bossier's works in Chinese versions were published. Crown Drew by New Literature and Art Publishing House in 1958. Calypso Isle by Shanghai Literature and Art Publishing House in 1960. And Rum and Coca-Cola by Writers Publishing House in 1964. Then K.S. Preacher's The Royal 90s in Chinese translation was published by People's Literature Publishing House in 1959, and to the Waltons, The Unbending by Shanghai Literature and Art Publishing House in 1959. In 1960, two major Chinese publishing houses published two collections of Australian short stories in Chinese translation. Henry Lawson's Sand Round's Head by People's Literature Publishing House, and to the Waltons, Alien Sand by Shanghai Literature and Art Publishing House. I'd like to show you, I mean, the book covers or title pages of these 23 books. Let's take a look. This is Diplomat by uh, James Aldridge, one version, and uh, another version by a different translator, but published in the same year by a different uh, publishing house, The Diplomat. Uh, this is Sea Eagle by uh, James Aldridge. Uh, the Hunter, Sand with their owner, Heroes of Empty View, one more inch. Uh, this is by uh, Frank Hardy. It's about his travels to the Soviet Union, journey into the future. Xing for the Mintian. Power Without Glory by Frank Hardy. Bu uh, uh, the Tracks We Travel, a collection of short stories by um, a number of I mean, uh, writers, uh, including Frank Hardy and Judah Wharton. Uh, the Four-Legged Lottery by Frank Hardy. Sam uh, Happy. This is by uh, Jack Lindsay, Betrayed Spring, a very famous book, uh, one of his uh, Representative works. Uh, Run away. As I said, as I mentioned previously, uh, this I mean, book, the translation of 
the translation was based not on the original English version, but on the Russian version. Uh, the abandoning by Judah Wharton, uh, Alien Sun by Judah Wharton, The Royal Nineties by Catherine Susanna Pritchard. Changing Tide, play by Bertrand. Uh, Pacific Paradise by Cusack, Dimfina Cusack, a play. Uh, Better Millstone, a play by Mona Brand. The Strangers in the Land, also by Mona Brand. So two plays by Mona Brand. Uh, this is a children's book by uh, Leslie Reyes died dig on the Barrier Reef. Okay. Uh, this book is, I mean, uh, the book, is, I mean, uh, copies of this book is are still available on um, uh, second secondhand bookstores in China. Crown <coughs> uh, by Bossier, Huang Guanshan Bosch, Huang Guanshan Isle by Bossier. Uh, this is a play. Uh, Rum and Coca-Cola by Boisier. Tian Jiu Yu Coca-Cola. And the last book is um, uh, Sand Round's Head by uh, Henry Lawson, a collection of his short stories. So to summarize, uh, the first wave of mass interest in foreign, including Australian literature, started in the early 1950s. I mean, at that time, it's a kind of, I mean, um, uh, peak period, I mean, uh, of translating uh, foreign literature uh, into Chinese. Not just Australian, of course, and uh, there are also translation of uh, American, British, French, I mean, European literature, and even uh, 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 South American literature into Chinese. So that's a very a booming period of translating foreign literature into Chinese. In, in the 1950s and the 60s, uh, foreign literature, including Australian literature that exposed the capitalist system would be the proper kind of literature for the new socialist Republic of China, especially uh, exposing the evil uh, capitalist system and its content is workers' movement, for example, and workers' strikes. So the writers are mainly progressive, left-wing, or social realist writers. Okay. These writers uh, tend to be uh, introduced and published. Some of the translations were based on the English or uh, English versions published in the Soviet Union, or Russian versions published in the Soviet Union, uh, published by the Moscow Foreign Languages Publishing House, for example. And some of the translations were even based on the writer's manuscripts, so not published uh, elsewhere yet. So it was first published in China, means the Chinese version was first published. Uh, for example, Bossier's play, uh, uh, called um, 
Calypso Isle was first published in China, in Chinese. The Chinese version came first. And uh, some of the trans translations were based on the typescripts, especially when the writers were still alive while the translation was conducted. And the translators at that time uh, were well-educated and versed in both Chinese and English or foreign languages. Uh, so the quality of the translation was very high uh, because of the translators are very qualified. And the publishing houses, you see, are uh, mean very top national level uh, publishing houses like People's Literature Publishing House, Shanghai Literature and Art Publishing House, very, very top, and Writers Publishing House. Okay. They are of the highest rank in literary publications in China. Now, I'd like to uh, share with you my current research, um, research focus. Uh, currently, I focus on four writers, I mean, um, uh, including Dimfuna uh, Cusack, Ralph de Bossier, Catherine Susanna Pritchard, and Duda Wharton. So why the four writers? Why them? Of the translated Austrian writers in China in 1950 to 65, my current research focuses on these four writers. The four writers are considered as humanist realists as they do not conform to the narrow concept of socialist realism. Unlike some other left-wing writers, they were widely respected in Australia and overseas, even though their political positions were sometimes somewhat controversial. Tim Funakilsak, Ralph de Bossier, Catherine Pritchard, and Trudeau Wharton also characterize and represent the multicultural features of Australian literature. Tim Funakilsak was born and grew up in Sydney and lived most of her life in Sydney. Ralph de Bossier, born in Trinidad in South Africa, in, South, in the Caribbean, <coughs> migrated to Melbourne with his family and, and lived in Melbourne till the end of his life. He lived a quite long life, over 100, I remember. Catherine Pritchard, born in Fiji, moved to Australia as a child and lived most of her life in Perth. Judith Wharton, born in Russia into a Jewish family, arrived in Australia before the age of three and was to become a representative writer, migrant writer, and a cultural activist throughout his life. Now he lived in Melbourne. Realist and idealist at the same time, these four writers were passionate and compassionate. Their vision was beyond the national boundary of Australia and was wild was rather international. Their contributions should be remembered in cultural transmissions and more broadly in their making Australian literature known in the non-English speaking world as part of world literature before Australian literature was taught, studied as a subject at, Aus at Australian universities. Dimfuna Cusack Cusack visited China with her husband in 1956 
and spent two and a half years in different parts of China. One outcome of her travels is the book Chinese Women Speak, published by Angus and Robertson in 1958. The book was republished by London's Century Hutchinson Limited in 1985. It, was, it has been considered a classic in women's studies. Cusack's husband, Norman Freehill's book, Dimfuna Cusack, published in 1975, devotes one chapter to their stay in China. In the book, Freehill wrote, for Dimfuna Cusack, for Dimfuna, China is one of the unforgettable experiences of her life. The place where, she says, she learned to believe in miracles because she saw them daily. People often ask us how were we treated by the ordinary Chinese. The answer is, in the superlative, we were treated by, as friends. It would take a very long chapter to record the many instances over those two and a half years. It ranged from the workers in the fields, the hutongs, to the individual homes or modest third-floored huts. The book that made Cusack's reputation in the 1950s is Pacific Paradise, a play protesting against atomic weapons. Pacific Paradise was translated, published, and performed in countries of Asia, Eastern Europe, and the Pacific. The Chinese version, based on the author's typescript, came out in 19 1957 while Cusack was still in China. Cusack's China tour, the reception of her works and her role in promoting Australia-China friendship and Australia literature in China need more studies. A knowledge of her contributions in these regards are still relevant today. It is believed that files on Cusack were maintained during her stay in China, as it was the common practice that the words and deeds of foreigners in China were recorded in much detail and filed in archives. Research will be conducted on the archives at the China Women's Federation, the Commission for Cultural Relations with Foreign Countries, and the Chinese Writers' Union. Can I mention here, because Colin Todd uh, in 1964 to 1966 at the Beijing Foreign <coughs> Institute. So, I mean, naturally, we had files on him. And uh, my colleague accidentally found that uh, in, can I, can I mention that? Mm, yeah, if you like, I mean. Um, accidentally found, uh, I mean, uh, a record, record on uh, calling, saying that uh, because in the test, English textbook, there's a passage on Christmas. Now, Colin refused to teach that text because, uh, according to the I mean, um, uh, archive, uh, Colin said, "No, this is not Christmas. I mean, this is not what it's like. I mean, in Western countries." So I refused to teach this text, and it was recorded in the file. Is that? 
The version, yes, that's true, yeah. Um, uh, it's not quite right, but it's sort of, yeah, yeah, in essence. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> so not a very controversial fall. The idea that I refused to teach a text which yeah. I thought was untrue. What? Well, yeah. That, that is. Yeah. Okay. So the text is about Christmas, right? Yeah. I remember doing that. Yeah. yeah. So I'm looking forward to, I mean, uh, to, to um, access uh, QSEC's files, perhaps we. I mean, I'm hoping to find more. Um, I mean, materials about her. I mean, her la her stay in China. Bosie Bosie has long been neglected and uh, understudied in Australian literary history, and very often uh, uh, she's not regarded as an Australian writer even. The circumstances in which Bosie's three works were translated and published and how they were received in China still remain unclear. His China tour and its pact are to be explored based upon archival documents. Bossier's three works in Chinese translation are Kuan in 1958, Calypso Isle in 1960, and Rum and Coca-Cola in 1964. Little is known about why his works were translated into Chinese and who made the decision to have three of his works translated. There's no mention of the translation of his works into Chinese or correspondence concerning their publication in China in his autobiography published later called Life on the Edge, published after uh, her death. But according to Annie Great, Bossier's second wife, such correspondence existed. In an email to me, Dr. Annie Great wrote that I'm sure he was in contact with his Chinese translators. At least they had a title page here in Chinese and dated about 1955, I think on which he had handwritten Chinese edition of Crown Drew. It was ironic to him that royalties from the Chinese publishers was the only ones he ever received a few hundred dollars. The novels were published in Australia by the original Realist Writers group of men who funded their own publications and then traveled Australia addressing unis and workshops selling their socialist books. The catalog of the National Library of Australia indicates that the Chinese translation of Kron Zhou is based on the Paulist Wortlag uh, Leipzig edition in 1956, and the other two works, Calypso Isle and Ram and Coca-Cola, are based on Bossier's typescripts. Not on, for example, the Coca-Cola was already there was already uh, published editions. I mean, published in Australia, but the translation was based on his uh, typescripts, and of course, I checked the. I mean, uh, the first, the, the published edition and the Chinese version, uh, I mean, uh, they were different. Both the beginning and the ending are different. So we may ask, why the difference? The difference. <clears throat> Bossier's China tour in 1957 to 1970. 
1958 was an important event in his life. The tour was fully narrated in his autobiography, Life on the Edge, published in 2010 after his death. In November 1958, Bossier undertook a study tour of China with 11 other members of the CPA. The tour lasted half a year, and their itinerary included such places as Guangzhou, Beijing, Xi'an, Chengdu, Lanzhou, Shanghai, Wuhan, and other places. As a keen observer, De Bossier was impressed with the passion and enthusiasm of the Chinese people. He wrote in his autobiography, the old people look at us in surprise when we greet them, but suddenly surprise turns to a smile of joy. We take photos with the children all around us. A young mother rushes up and puts her baby into Chloe's arms. The little fellow cries, and she claps her hands and laughs to console him. Nowhere can I find that impassive Chinese of literary legend and his inscrutable countenance. Two red army men come up to me and shake my hand and wish me well. In the factory, a young man takes my hand and in his enthusiasm, actually trembling in his eagerness, cannot let it go. We speak, he in Chinese, I in English, but our hearts speak louder and more meaningfully than words. This is a time of much sweetness and light. Pritchard, uh, there must be document on Catherine Susanna Pritchard's contest with China and how she was received in China, given that she was a prominent writer and a leading figure of the CPA. Very prominent writer and also a very leading figure within uh, uh, communist, uh, communist Party of Australia. The poet and the professor Glenn Phillips has in recent years advocated the renewed study of Catherine Pritchard's brilliant career. Australia's first truly international, international novelist, a short story writer of fame and influence, a prize-winning dramatist, a peace activist, and a political stalwart of the left. Pritchard was first introduced to China in the 1950s. The Chinese version of the Royal Nineties was published by People's Literature Publishing House in 1959, with a preface for the Chinese version written by Pritchard herself. Pritchard never visited China as an eminent writer and a committed communist. She must have known the consequences of a tour to China in, 1950, in 1950s and 60s. Her son, Rick Thrussell, worked in the Department of Foreign Affairs from 1943 to 1983. Archives show that before the departure of the CP Fitzgerald's 
led Australian China Society cultural dedication to China in 1956. He, he assured Canberra in a confidential letter that the dedication would not include communists or fellow travelers anxious to avoid an official backlash against the expedition. The professor here, referring to uh, C.P. Fitzgerald, promised not to invite figures like Catherine Susanna Pritchard or Frank Hardy. Now this is from uh, Strand's book, uh, Australia's China. But Pritchard, well, Pritchard was enthusiastic about the new China. She was obviously aware of what was happening in the PRC in the 1950s and 60s. Correspondence between Pritchard and the people or organizations in China went on. When the first book of her epic Goldfield trilogy, The Royal Nineties, was translated into Chinese and published by People's Literature Publishing House in 1959, she specially wrote a preface for the Chinese translation in January 1959. In the preface, Pritchard applauded the PRC's interest in other nations' literature. She expressed admiration and delight for the political and economic achievements made by the Chinese people in the new China, and cited from a poem by the great Tang Dynasty poet Bai Juyi, which she often cited, she said. The poem is called Xin Zhi Bu Qiu, a brand new coating robe, in which preacher's favorite line is An De Wan Li Qiu, Gai Guo Zhou Si Yin. I mean, a uh, rough translation could be, where was the infinite role big enough to encompass the four directions? She firmly believed that literary and cultural exchanges would promote the friendship between Australia and the PRC and would pave the path to economic and diplomatic relations between the two countries. She asserted that many Australians felt ashamed of the attitude towards China taken by the Australian government in the 1950s. More of Pritchard's work were translated into Russian, Germany, and other languages in the 1950s and 60s. But there's only one book uh, I mean, by, by Pritchard in Chinese translation. So research is needed to explain why only one work by Pritchard was translated into Chinese. To the voting. Uh, current research on to the voting's connection with China is very, very scarce. I think this gap will be filled up, hopefully. To the voting has a very special position in Australian literary history as a Jewish Australian writer, a communist writer, and a writer on the migrant experience. According to David Carter, an academic on to the voting, and also of the entry of Jude Wharton in the Australian Dictionary of Biography, Wharton's significance to Australian literature remains considerable, despite the limitations of his restrained realist style. Wharton was active both politically and literally. 
a member of the Communist Party of Australia in the 1950s, he remained left-leaning throughout his life. He was engaged in such organizations as the Realist Writers Group, International Pan, and the Fellowship of Australian Writers. His literary achievement was duly acknowledged by being awarded a member of, of the Order of Australia in 1979 and the Patrick White Award after his death in 1985. Wharton's best-known work, a collection of autobiographical short stories, Alien Sign, was first published in 1952. It has been frequently reprinted and republished since, his, since its first publication. Wharton's The Unbending, in Chinese translation, co-translated by Yili and Ma Luo, was published by Shanghai Literature and Art Publishing House in 1959. In the, in the note written by the translators, on the 13th of April, 1959, the information about voting was very sketchy. The, translat the translators claimed that we only know that he, here referring to Wharton, is an Australian progressive writer and the manager of an Austra Australian progressive publishing house, Australian Book Society, playing an active role in defending and promoting Australian progressive literature and fighting against bourgeois decadent literary aestheticism. Besides this book, he also wrote Alien Sun, Now, this is my own translation from uh, the Chinese note written by the uh, translators. Now, whether correspondence between translators and the author Wharton occurred or not is yet to be discovered. The Chinese translation was based on the English version pub published by the Australian Book Society in 1954. The print run of the first Chinese edition of the Unbinding is in June 1959 was 22,000. That's quite a lot, I mean, at that time, because we have to consider uh, the difficulty times, I mean, China was in in 1960s. Very difficult time economically. In 1960, the Chinese translation of Wharton's Alien Sign was published by the same publishing, a Shanghai. Literature and Art Publishing House. Its translator was Zhao Jiabi, a very prominent editor and translator in modern China, and the then associate editor-in-chief of Shanghai Literature and Art Publishing House, in charge of foreign literature publication. The Chinese translation was based on the English edition published by Angus and Robertson in London in 1953. The print run of the first printing was 10,000. Zhao Jiabi wrote in the note that Alien Sun was recommended to Chinese readers by Alan Marshall, the writer, when he visited China. Alan Marshall might have presented the English version as a gift to Zhao Jiabi. Zhao Jiabi's three-volume memoir will be consulted to find relevant information concerning Alien Sun or Alan Marshall's visit to China. It is assumed that Alan Marshall might have recommended other Australian literary works to Chinese readers while he was in China. 
Now, more information of the visit is to be discovered. The late 1950s and early 1960s were economically a difficult period in China. Both the, both the, the Unbending and Alien Sen and some other books were printed with very coarse paper. The years of 1950 to 65 were difficult times for the PRC, as I said, both economically and ideologically. The cultural translation, transmission from the Australian side was not promoted by the Australian government, as I said. Rather, Australian individuals and various organizations played major roles in the engagement in the process. The Australian literary works in Chinese translation in 1950 to 65 were the primary sources of knowledge of Australia that were available to Chinese people until the late 1970s. These works were collected by individuals and libraries in different parts of China. Records show that these works are still found at the National Library of China, the provincial and the municipal libraries across China. Some of the works can be bought at the largest online second-hand bookstore in China, Confuzi Jiushu Wang. It is hypothesized that Catherine Pritchard was correct in stating in her preface to the Chinese translation of her the Royal Nineties that the literary and cultural exchanges would promote the friendship between Australia and the PRC and would uh, pave the path to economic and diplomatic relationships between the two countries. Political courage and wisdom in the two countries did arise to normalize, to establish the diplomatic relations between Australia and China in 1972. Of course, I mean, it's at this, at, at this stage, I mean, uh, uh, it's only early stage of my research. Um, I have more questions, in fact. For example, questions like, uh, why were these writers translated in 1950s and 60s? And uh, why wasn't Doris Hewitt? He was there. And why wasn't Alan Marshall, for example? He was there. And were both progressive writers, left-wing writers. Uh, who made the decisions? Uh, are there any I mean, related archival documents about the translation and the publications. Uh, and how, I mean, uh, I mean, uh, what was the reception of these, I mean, works in China? I mean, uh, including, for example, critical reviews, uh, circulation, I mean, the pub public library collection, and individual collection. So I needed to do more work about the, I mean, uh, the receptions of these works. And uh, I believe that the translation and publishing of these works, I mean, uh, to some, I mean, to some extent, was helpful. I mean, uh, I mean, agree with um, Pritchard, and paved the path for uh, the diplomatic uh, relations. But uh, where is the solid evidence? So I need to do more work to find the, I mean, solid evidence to prove that, I mean, it is really, I mean, um, paved uh, the path for the uh, establishment of the 
uh, diplomatic relationship between the two countries in 1972. Now, to summarize, Australian literature was already part of world literature in 1950s and 60s. I mean, contrary to what was commonly consumed, assumed, and it crossed its national boundary to China and other parts of the world, non-English-speaking world, much earlier than commonly assumed. Except for Henry Lawson, all the 10 Austrian writers who were introduced to China were still alive and active in 1950s and 60s. They were either communists or socialists or had socialist sympathies. They were aware that their works were translated and published and had a correspondence with their translators. Some of them, at least, had correspondence with their translators or publishers. Both James Aldrich and Catherine Pritchard wrote special note or preface for their works in Chinese translation. Archives show that writers received royalties of their books. For example, um, Boissier um, um, did receive royalties from China. Today, cultural engagement and exchanges are still needed to reduce misunderstandings between different cultures. Recently, we asked for his comments on exchanges and mutual learning among civilizations and a community with a shared future. Professor Colin McCarra said, I think it is highly desirable to learn from each other and to hold mutual exchanges. It is so much better and with so much more more potential to benefit everybody than the American first and make America great again that we hear from the United States. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Jin. That was really good. Now, Haru, um, yes. You talked a lot about the Australian authors. Actually, I was going to ask a question when you say that you still have to do more research. I yes. decided what sort of books to translate. My question is that you really said virtually nothing about the translators. Who were they? Yeah. Were they appointed? Like, you know, you, Yuan Kejia, translate this book, yeah. you translate it. Or did those people actually really have an interest in Australian literature? And therefore, in a way, they're actually in a better position to appreciate the nuance. I mean, translating is not mechanical, right? When you need yeah. to understand the society yeah. in order to translate something well. Mm. So I was wondering, right, how were these translators, how were they chosen? Or how were they, you know, did they, have they came across these Australian books? Yeah. And said, oh, really good, I really want to translate it, right? I don't think they, 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 they was, yeah. uh, that was, was my main question. Yeah. My subsidiary question, in a way, is not related, is Bai Ji, right? How, because I have an interest in him, yeah. right? Why, what does Pritchard, right? Yeah, that's awesome. What did she see yeah. in that him. That's, right. that, that, that's my two questions. Yeah, that's yeah. my same question. I also yeah. share that, that. add one to in relation to yeah, the sure. first yeah. one? Uh, 1950s is the, the, the height of planning economy. I think in the area of publication in China, I think there's going to be some national plans. They might have quotas for American writers, for European writers, mm. and for other areas. So. I mean, yeah, what, 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 what does the you know, publication of foreign works, what would the state, how, how would that 
work at all. And the, uh, the interaction between Austrian writers and Chinese translators uh, is quite dramatic. I think it's, some works are published without, um, without the, the first being published elsewhere. They just translate from manuscript, yeah. unpublished manuscript. Yeah, so are there any transnational, what are the transnational links between these two groups mm. of intellectual slash authors? So there's three questions. So please, Jinjin, you go. Yeah, I, 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 that's also my question. I mean, the, you see, uh, the mechanism of collaboration in publishing Australian literature among the socialist countries, I mean, these publishers, publishing houses. I mean, at that time, I mean, I think there's a kind of mechanism, I mean, existing. Uh, so very often, I mean, the Chinese uh, translations of Australian literature because it does the digital translation because now these books sometimes was already translated into I mean Russian uh, or Germany or mm. Polish even. So, so, so my remark question does those translators actually have an interest in Australian literature? It's just no, like no, a job. It's a job. I think it's a job. It's a job. It's not they don't have the freedom to yeah, choose. But they have no interest basically. Might not be oh, oh, yeah we can't say they have they no interest. No, 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 no. No, we can't say that. Because uh, I don't yeah, we can't say they have no interest. But they but might it, have, yeah. yeah. It's, they, they, but they don't have the freedom I don't, to translate whatever they want to translate. I don't, I don't think they have, no, not like today, I mean, mm -hmm. or, or translate can choose what you want to translate. No, not in the 1950s and 60s. Mm. What about Baiji? <laughs> yeah, what about Baiji? Yeah, that's also my, I mean, my question. Yeah, because, <laughs> yeah, I think uh, in 19, so clearly, Pritchard uh, was interested in Baiji very much. And, and, uh, I think he, he must have, she must have a copy of the English version, the English translation of Belgian's mm -hmm. poems at that time. And especially, the reality yeah, the translation. Yeah. yeah. So, mm -hmm. that's, I, yeah, I will find out. I mean, tell me. Yeah, I will. <laughs> I will, I mean, access uh, preachers' archives yeah. and, uh, yeah, digging, I mean, the materials, I mean, related to Baiju, I mean, why, yeah. especially she was interested in that poem, I mean, and she, in the preface she said, that line, she, I mean, her, her favorite line from that poem, and she, she, she often quoted. I uh, think it's possible, mm, it's possible that the people in China, you know, Australians who went there, took an interest in Chinese culture, and Bajui, I think, is the one that is especially favoured um, because of his... Um, he, I mean, he lived, as you know, in the, uh, in the 8th century and he was affected by the Anushan Rebellion. And I think he, um, he had a lot of um, interest in that. And he wrote expressing his distress yeah. at the way that was happening. And maybe, maybe she thought that, that uh, you know, the political line was very appropriate to her work. I, I, that, but that would be worth pursuing, wouldn't it? Yeah, I have been trying to look at the original English so version, I mean, Richard, but I haven't found it. Mm. I haven't found it. I mean, yeah. So, uh, this one, you, 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 you're not answering? No, no, just, just the relationship between the, yeah. the, the two groups of writers. Okay. Yeah, uh, according to George Abbey, you see, Putin Walton's works must be uh, recommended. I mean, must have been recommended by Anna Marshall, that's clear, because in the note, in the no, uh, uh, translator's note, and uh, it, is, it was stated that uh, Anna Marshall recommended uh, to the Waters' works to George Abbey, because George Abbey, 
At that time in, in Shanghai, literature uh, the publishing house, she was in charge of foreign literature publication, translation and publication. She was the uh, deputy editor in chief, so very powerful position, I mean, to to decide. But but I mean in other I mean for some in um, so we, we often assume that at that time in 1950s and 60s, there existed a kind of uh, organization or committee to decide, I mean, what works to be translated. It's not just Australian works, but also, I mean, American and French, German. Uh, there can uh, be some, some kind of quota. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't know it's, whether it's quota or not, but there's a kind of, should be a, 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 a committee, I mean, or um, a council, I mean. Could it be the Chinese Writers Association? I don't know. Yeah, we can't. We, 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 we will find. We'll find out. Yeah, we'll find out. Yeah. Are there any other, other questions anyone would like to raise? Could I add about the... Um, oh, no, you go first, Wang. You, you're, you're oh, no, you go first. I have a similar comment, actually, related to the previous question. Uh, well, thanks, Jenju. Uh, Thank you. Yes, I had a look at the slides you were showing. Among the translators' names, I was paying particular attention to the translators' names. Only one name appeared three times. The others yeah. probably appeared only once. Yeah. Usual shown was yeah, you should, one yeah. He was times. a professional translator. And uh, in, even before 1949, before the uh, PRC, he was already a very experienced translator. So he's a, uh, I mean, Professional translator, but the other translator, I don't think they are professional. Where did you work, by the way? In Shanghai. Uh, in a university or? No, I don't. Bureau no, I mean, maybe, I, I think he, he was an independent translator. Mm -hmm. he's, he's, yeah. yeah. Was, in fact, he, he, he's a very special translator. I was trying to debunk the, um, the theory that it was coordinated translation as such, or even a quota. Um, if you look at today's translation market in China, even politically sensitive books, uh, they do still get translated. Uh, it's very much a negotiation process between the translators who are out to get any new books to translate. Uh, and, on the other hand, the authorities will just do a veto on the really no-go books. Um, Mm. I, so from that I assume, probably even back in the 1950s, the, the people with bilingual skills, they were probably eager, they had their, their own favorite works to pick, to translate. No, no. Or, so I was trying to think, how do we prove that is the case? Uh, and also, in fact, my uh, other question relates more to um, the field of Australian studies in China. Uh, for those of us with some knowledge of Australian studies uh, within China itself, uh, it was people like Professor Wu Wenzhong, also from Beiwan, yes. mm. uh, who was one of the earliest uh, <laughs> academics in China to make a serious and systematic study of Australian literature mm. per se. Uh, he was active, actually uh, educated at Sydney University and so on mm. and so forth. Uh, a small group of scholars was sent no. to Australia. Yeah. yeah, nine of them. Uh, Wen Zhong was among the nine, and he specialized in Australian literature. And before him, there was yeah, only sporadic efforts, uh, and there was little systematic knowledge of Australian literature. It was probably regarded as just a component of English literature, 
and so on. Um, so I was actually trying to think out loud as uh, the question was being raised um, whether there was any personal um, preference in choosing the words or it was officially assigned. I was debating within myself. Mm. So I wanted to see some more evidence in that regard. Uh, I, I don't think at that time the translators have had the freedom to choose the works themselves. Mm. I mean, they so, have. So who was doing the assigning? Yeah. So That's we the have. Question. Yeah, we have to find out. Usually, why wouldn't you? The translation bureau uh, was usually the uh, coordinating authority. Mm -hmm. But since you don't know that straight out, um, probably it has fallen between some of the cracks. Uh, it was also possible there was several authorities. Yeah. Perhaps, yeah. I would say that, I mean, now it's much freer. Yeah. Very. Yeah. If you go to the Chinese bookshop, you can see translations, um, 1984, Animal Farm, The Origins of Totalitarianism by Hannah Arendt. Yeah. I doubt those books would, would have been allowed to be translated in mm. the anyway, you know, I don't know when they were translated. And even in the, in the 80s or 70s, that would have been no no. 80s, okay. I mean, in the 1980s. Past 83 or something. In the 70s, I mean, after Mao Dai, okay, yeah. I think before Mao Dai. 1980s, uh, that's a, another yeah. booming period of yeah. translating yeah. of foreign literature. I mean, very. Mind you, uh, some of those sensitive titles, you assume they have been translated thoroughly, actually. A lot of them are truncated translations. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, yeah. 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 and also, even back in the 50s, even now, uh, there was a pet phrase used by Chinese translators. Usually they put in the preface. Now, in your readings of those prefaces of these books you've listed, did you see this recurring? No, no, because no? because the content of these books are, mm. are safe, I think, at that time. Because, yeah, progressive writers. Yeah, progressive writers, so yeah, no problem. Hardy, yeah. yeah, Frank Hardy, Pritchard, no problem at all. I mean, no, so no, not necessary to critically absorbing okay. the content. David, you're next. Uh, okay, I, I, I was not here in Australia in the 1950s, so I don't know anything about the literature, but I was intrigued by the title Rum and Coca-Cola. Yes. Because <laughs> Rum and Coca-Cola is one of my favorite songs that's from, a, from my childhood by the Andrews sisters. Yeah. And I just looked it up on Goodreads, and a, the content of the book does not look like anything that would be at all uplifting in... Maoist moral China in the 1950s. I mean, it, it takes yeah. place in Trinidad, and of course, it's yeah. about what the song is about. It's about yeah. prostitution and dissolute life. Why would a book like that be translated? Yeah, yeah I don't know. I mean, and I as, 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 as Australian <laughs> literature, you know, the translator Shi Xianrong. If you did by, by done by Shi Xianrong, he's a very famous translator. I mean, very top. But, but don't forget, David, if you depend which part of the 50s, because in the early 50s until the anti rightist movement, Deng Xiaoping and those people were having uh, dancing foxtrot and so on in Chodanghai, they had all those dancing parties, they're very liberal, actually, after the revolution. It's only starting the, the anti rightist movement, and then well, things I mean, went down. The, from the contest, it, it, would, it would show the dissoluteness of the West. Yeah. But, you know, yeah, but it was nothing about Australia. No, no. That is something to be critical. Yeah, to be critical. Of course, yes. as well, of course. <laughs> so, is there any more, any more questions? Yeah, yeah please. Question. Yes. I think today's topic is very interesting because uh, China and Australia established the formal relationship uh, from uh, 1972. Yeah. So, during this period, 1950 to 1965, 
we still don't have the formal relationship. So that this literature works help these two countries to establish the relationship. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When you solid evidence. You seem to imply <laughs> that it did. But I'd like to I think that's a good question. Yeah. What do you what do you think? I don't have the answer yet. So I need to <laughs> I need to I need to find the solid evidence, I mean to prove that it it, it did, I mean, help to pave the path, I mean, for the diplomatic relations. But but Pritchard said, I mean, she, she said that it w it would help. I mean, <laughs> yeah. yes, yes, yeah, please, please. Is there any translation to work on the indigenous culture of Australia? No, no, not at that time. Not in the 1950s and 60s. But there is now. Yes, of course. Mm. Yeah, now there are more it's flourishing. Yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah, indigenous literature, children's literature. I mean, that's. Uh, mm. Any more questions? Other than, you know, Actually, I've got, you, you, go, you go first. Yeah, I've got yeah, just uh, as uh, uh, one of the major Australian studies in China. So could you give us a brief overview of you know, Australian studies in China? <laughs> okay, that's a different topic. Right? Could you explain yeah. economics to me? That's a different topic. I need a while. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Just a summary. Thank you for raising that. That's a very pertinent one because actually, genuine for your benefit, there are probably more social scientists and political oh, okay. scientists in this room mm -hmm. than literary studies scholars here. So, oh, okay. if you can broaden uh, your talk a bit by okay. yeah, touching on Australian studies in general. Yeah. Uh, currently. There are 36, uh, remember it says 36 Australian study centers in China, across China, in different I mean, universities and uh, research uh, institutions, like uh, Chinese uh, Academy, Academy of Social Sciences and uh, Shanghai Academy of Social Sciences, for example. Uh, of course, some centers are very active, and some centers are less active. Uh, we also have the Chinese Association for Australian Studies. Now, uh, now the association now is based at my center, uh, Beijing Forest State University, where the president is uh, the president of the association. Uh, association is uh, our vice president, Professor uh, Su Yuzhong. Currently, I'm the uh, secretary general of the association. And uh, uh, can I say I know all the centers? I mean, <laughs> I know all the directors, and uh, uh, yeah, I'm quite familiar with. I mean. The current, uh, I mean, uh, development of Australian uh, study in China, and uh, in every two years, the association uh, organizes uh, the biannual conference. That's quite big. I mean, very often we have uh, delegates about two hundred people. So it's biannual. So every two years, we have we we, we uh, organize this. Uh, uh, international Conference of Australian Studies in China. Now next year it will be held in Harbin, oh. HIT, okay, Harbin Institute of Techno Technology. That's the 17th conference. So it started in 1988. The first conference was held in Beijing, at Beijing, at that time called Beijing Foreign Languages Institute. That's the first conference. Uh, uh, yeah, Professor Huin Zhong, um, yeah. he was the founding president of the association, and uh, so uh, and based the Australian Study Centre at Beijing Foreign Study University was founded in 1983, 
I think that's that's the very early. I mean, one of the earliest. Uh, the Australian Studies Centre at Anhui University, they claim they is the first because, uh, but they don't. When they were founded, they don't call them. They didn't call them Australian Studies Centre. They call them uh, kind of research institutes of uh, Oceanian literature. Founded in 1979, but of course Australia was included. So if maybe that was the first center. But as I said, uh, it's still a good center. Yeah, it's, a, yeah, yeah. it's a very yeah. good center. Can, still. can I add to that just a little bit on, on uh, I, I guess, the why question? Um, is there a particular fascination with Australian things? Uh, around uh, Chinese Academy? I mean, are there Indonesian centers? Are there, you know, Brazil, studies of Brazil and, and things like that? Canada, yeah. UK, or is, is it's Australia? Interesting. Yeah, it's interesting. Why, why, why Australia? I mean, in China, why so many centers? I mean, it's 36. That's, that's amazing. I mean, I mean, you put together I mean, all the Australian centers in the world. I mean, you don't have 36. I mean, including, I mean, United Kingdom, United, USA, I mean, all the European countries. No, I mean, all together. But in China, we have 36 Australian city centres. I've often wondered why there was no Can Canadian centre. I think there is one yeah, now. There is one. Yeah, there is one. But the Australian South Study Centre in uh, Beiwai is much older. Yeah. yeah. We've got koalas. Sorry. Ah, koalas. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Most recently, um, the Australian government uh, will provide 40 no, not million dollars. No. $44 million to support yeah. Australian Chinese yeah. Studies. Yeah. So, National so Foundation. What, yeah. Yeah. what would be your, what would be your recommendations to the government? I mean, to build up Australian Chinese Studies. I think it's very, very good, very good mm. initiative. Very good. I mean, yeah. the creation of the National Foundation for yeah. Australia China Relations. Activities or what, what kinds of projects you would like the Australian government to do? Of course, my interest is in, in the field of culture and education. I mean, I, I would like I mean, the Australian government to put more funding in the cultural educational exchanges. But they specifically said it was going to include health and economy. Yeah, that's right. Because the earlier ones got money from Australian government and also from BHP. I mean, BHP is a recent. Uh, uh, I think, Beijing that's, that's very recent. No, 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 it's earlier. They got money from. No, no. From, from, I mean, for. Later than yours, but they also got money. They, they that, that's that study in 1913, 2013, 2013. That's, yeah, very that's right, recent. but after yours, but also there was money from uh, in BHP China, and so on. There, I think probably only two key centers in the study support, I mean the government support, two very key centers in Australia or and New Zealand or Pacific Island studies. One in Beijing, one in Shanghai. Zhongzhang, Zhongzhang University, yeah. mm. Junior Central University. But Shanghai, uh, Shanghai, uh, East China. The education department's key center. Uh, yeah. Mm. Uh, so, what would your recommendation to the to premier uh, Li Keqiang? No, uh, if they can. Yeah. <laughs> 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 one, one comment on the translators. I, I don't want to speak to him. <laughs> a lot of translators in the United States, they have biography. I mean, to discuss the process of how they would recruit it 
to be translated, and, and what kinds of procedures or or the I mean of the the, the translation process, such as Yang Jiang, when Xu translate. Tang Ji yeah. and Chen when he was recruited to be the in the whole team, I mean, to translate Chairman Mao's works. Works, but he played a very inactive one. I mean, although he was extremely professional, he was extremely knowledgeable. This has something to do with their characters and yeah, personality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. But I think in that kind of literature that would give us some ideas about the 1950, I mean about that mechanism. Uh, I mean, I mean, yeah, who, I mean, the scale of, of, of the translation project. But actually they, they try to recruit very top people. Yeah, yeah. Like Chen Zhong Shu, Yang That's Jiang right. and others. It seems to me that in the 1950 in your presentation, China has a very active project in the translation of some. Uh, they know that. Yeah. I mean, that is quite yeah. amazing. So yeah, I agree. As I said, these translators, they, are, they were well educated. I mean, both in Chinese and uh, English, in foreign languages. Yeah. Like Zhao Jiabi, like Shi uh, Rong, like Yuan uh, Kejia. Uh, I mean, mm. they, they, they had a very, very good education. That's the best education available to them at, at that time. I mean, do they keep the, diaries, the best education. Do they keep their diaries? Uh, because a lot of them, they, in, yeah. the, in the 1940s, with a lot of intellectuals. Yeah, George B. George memoir, three volume memoir, have been published. I would check. I mean, it's relevant. Yeah. Uh, not like today's translators. I mean, today's translators, the quality, I mean, are very different. I mean, some, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. but in 1950s and 60s, I mean, the, all the translators, they are very good mm. translators. I mean, you know, some of them, they, 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 they were educated, I mean, they were from very uh, wealthy families. I mean, they, their Chinese level was, I mean, even before they went to school, their Chinese was already very, very good. I mean, they have private tutors, for example. They, 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 they got private education at home. I mean, and later they went to West countries to get their degrees. I mean, then they came back to China. And, you know. Are there any more questions? I've actually got one, if, if you don't mind. Um, you mentioned one uh, piece. I can't remember which one. You said you checked the original and the translation, yeah, and course, you yes. found that they're, yeah. they're, the beginning the beginning and the ending are very different. different. Yes, and you talked about truncation. Yeah. No, it's not. I don't think it's truncation. It's uh, because because the writer uh, was in the habit of re rewriting his, I mean, books. He he, he had this uh, habit. I mean. So when his work was translated uh, into Chinese, he gave the, uh, the typescripts <laughs> to the translators, not the already published so version. He also changed the story. Yeah, changed it. Right. It's also interesting nowadays, I've seen in a bookshop where they have an English edition and a Chinese edition in one book. Oh, bilingual. Uh, yeah, yeah, the first, first early, the first half of the book is, let's say, oh. 1984, totally in English. 
The second half is a translation, uh, totally enemy. So, I mean, I did read through the 1984 Animal Farm Better Day Changes, but, but uh, you know, it looks to me that it is yes. very well, well translated, I don't know, but it's certainly the English one was there. Yeah. You know, and I think for a book like uh, Animal Farm, it's pretty hard to adopt yeah. <laughs> it. You know what I mean? The flavor will be gone. Some other books I can't tell. Yeah, uh, for example, in uh, Rum and Coca-Cola, uh, this was translated by Shi Xianrong. By the way, as I said, Shi Xianrong was a very, uh, very, very top translator in China. And uh, in my research, I will devote, I mean, some space to um, to, to Shi Xianrong, of course. Uh, the translation was based on the author's typescripts, but a quick comparison with the 1956 ABC version, Australian Book Society version shows that the two versions were very different. For example, the beginning of the 1950s ABC AABS version is Mopsy. Mopsy is the main character, a female character. Mopsy was wearing a frog with large pink flowers. A red hibiscus was in her hair. Her finger and toenails were carmined, and her cheeks flamed with rouge. In contrast. The first sentence of the Chinese version is, the Swedish sea captain walked out of the hotel of Paris. <laughs> Maybe they thought they were this is my own back translation, of course, from the Chinese. Chinese. This is the first sentence of the Chinese version. So the question, what is the difference between the versions? <laughs> In the field of modern Chinese history, Professor Benjamin Schwartz's most important book again, he tried to compare the translation or the original text in the translation, and he tried to focus on the, the reasons of distortion and through the comparison of the original. This text. is not distortion. This is based on different versions, yeah, yeah. different. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, yeah. so he tried to see the intentional intention of the translator to come up with some interesting thing. So I think Benjamin Swartz in search of wealth and power would have some kinds of interesting perspective. I mean, to to enrich this <laughs> kinds of yeah. Yes, sir. Can I just? Do you have any a meaningful reply to this question? I think it's a, on a more serious note. Why there are more Australian studies centres in China than any yeah, other uh, regional uh, specialist centres? Yeah. Yes. What's your theory? Yeah, I think uh, the very important reason is the contributions made by the Gang of Nine, those nine scholars who studied at University of Sydney in 1979 to 1981. Uh, they did their MA master's uh, studies, and uh, two did linguistics and Professor Halliday, and uh, the other seven uh, did literary studies, um, and, the, uh, and the Professor uh, Leonie Kramer. And these nine scholars, when they, 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 they were from different universities in China, they were selected, and uh, before they came to Australia, they were already, I mean, uh, kind of established mm. uh, teachers and mm. faculty members in their own universities. So after their return uh, to China uh, in 1981, yeah, 
and they went to their own home universities. For example, uh, Professor Huan Zhong went to Beijing Foreign Languages Institute, mm -hmm. and Professor Huang Yuanxin went to uh, East China Normal University, and uh, Hu Zhuangling went to Peking University. And this nice and uh, Wang Guofu went to Suzhou University, and this night, uh, Du Ching went to Xi'an International Study University. Now these nice scholars, when they went back to their home universities, they started to uh, set up Australian study centers, and uh, some of them very quickly became either the deans of the department, foreign language department. Or even the president's president. For example, Du Ching became the president of the Xi'an uh, International State University, and Professor Huan Zhong later became the vice president of Beijing Foreign Foreign State University. So they they also teach, they also teach, and they have students, either master's students uh, and PhD students. So. Well, that means there was a good seeding. That's right. Earlier. Exactly. I mean, their students, when they, did, they went to different universities to teach. And then, these students, I mean, they become teachers. And they, they are at, the, at new universities, and they yeah. set up new Australian Did you think the Australian Studies Council had an effect yeah. as well? Sorry? The Australian Studies Council? The Australian, yeah, in, yeah, the, yeah, in yeah. Australia? That's not the main reason. I think the main reason is. Is, is Actually, still I have another uh, theory on that. I've been thinking, because other people put forward the same question earlier within the Australian Studies Centre circle. I was thinking uh, within myself, what was the reason? I was comparing no uh, comparable Canadian Studies Centre with others. I think, um, well, probably... You're rushing to go. No, no, I, I was going to say, I think we've used up our time yeah, now. Yeah, okay. But this, so I'd like to thank um, you, Jen uh, Jim, yes, very much. Really I thought thank it was you. very, very interesting discussion mm. and very, very good paper, too. And um, I've enjoyed it greatly and learned a lot. Um, and I think that the question that you're raising, Wang, is a very good one, and you, you should uh, pursue it now <laughs> and have coffee together or something like that. Yes. Yeah, I think that's a very good idea to do that. So thank, thank you very much. Thank you very much.